Yeah, welcome along today, and if I haven't met you before, my name is Tim, and we are just starting a little mini-series in Advent leading into Christmas. We're a little bit late, because um, Advent starts the start of December, as normally the four weeks, four Sundays leading into Christmas, um, but we've had some other things on, so we're just doing like a half Advent mini this Sunday, next Sunday morning leading into Christmas, and I suppose the idea is, this idea of Advent just means arrival or coming, um, the, the, the idea that we, we prepare ourselves in waiting and ex- enter the experience of waiting um, for Jesus to come and kind of like think about what it was like for Israel to wait for their, their king, their Messiah. Um, but we know the story, he's come. But we are still people who wait. We wait for God to come and break into our lives each day or in our seasons. And we also wait for him to come back. So there's, there's, we're still in this story and waiting is an important part of it. And that's kind of what we enter into as Advent. So I suppose today's a little bit different. I'm kind of giving a teaching, but the goal of the teaching is almost an experience of trying to enter the experience of waiting or, or longing or hope. And interesting, the idea of hope in the Bible is, is really different to what we normally say. When you say, I hope you have a good Christmas, it's like a wish. Whereas the idea in the Bible is actually waiting for something in confidence. Um, so what we're going to do is actually go through Matthew chapter 1. Um, I thought it'd be good to look at the Christmas story from Matthew, since we've been in Matthew a fair bit this year, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so we'll go back to the beginning and have a look at what, what, what the biblical writers are saying around this, this beginning. And um, it's an interesting way to start, right? Like, I don't know if that was a really engaging Bible passage, anyone's favourite verse was in there. Like, it, it's a bit of a strange way to start a book about Jesus, just a long list of his family tree, long multiple generations, and you kind of think that just is not interesting at all. But for Jewish people, it was incredibly interesting, and it was incredibly important to know that if this man is claiming to be the Messiah, his family tree, his lineage is incredibly important. The history of how he came to be is incredibly important. And what we want to do today is have a look at Matthew and how he arranges this. And what I want to do is kind of let his understanding of history almost reshape ours because I suppose we might in general I don't know how you think about history or how you kind of normally think about the world but kind of the common belief in a lot of ways is that well things just happen and and life is mostly just an accident and there's no real meaning in life there's no real purpose there's no real goal if there is no one can really know um, there's, nothing, there's no bigger story that really keeps everything together. Life is just life. And we have our own meaning and our own purpose. And really what you need to do in life is find your own meaning. And that might be in your family. That might be in a certain career path. That might be in certain goals or certain achievements. And that's good. And, and you have your meaning and I have my meaning. And, and we just need to find that. And sometimes we even approach faith in the same way. We kind of, people might think, well, there's no really way to know or, or to know the truth about who God is. Or there isn't necessarily a truth. It's just faith. And faith is good. And it's good to have a faith in God. And you have your faith and I have my faith. And, and at Christmas we kind of just enjoy a faith and maybe a religious experience. But it's not really to do with the public life or the history of the world or what's actually true. But that is a very different way to think to the biblical authors or to a Hebrew understanding or really Christian understanding that actually life has a purpose and history has a meaning and a goal 
And what I want to do today is, is go through this passage just as almost like a bit of a platform to have a look at what that is and what would it look like to be shaped by that sort of thinking, not like a kind of um, Western secularism thinking, which is kind of like life is just meaningless or, or purposeless. So what we're going to do is go through Matthew 1. We're not going to get like super technical. We could get really detailed in there's lots of stuff in this genealogy, but just going to say surface level and just pull out a few points. So I might pray and then, then we'll get started. Father, we just thank you for this good news of Jesus and that, that we get to look back on um, and re-experience, particularly at Christmas. And we thank you just for who you are, that you're our God and that you're true. Uh, thank you for your word and, and how it um, shapes our thinking. And just ask even today, God, would you um, just, just reshape how we think about life, maybe, how we think about history, how we think about meaning and purpose, and just align ourselves to you and to your way and to your word. And we just pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so I don't think I'll actually try and read all them out. <laughs> I'll just read a few. <laughs> so this is, this is Matthew writing this, this gospel, this, this, this story about Jesus trying to present about who he is. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. That can also be translated, this is the Genesis it's almost like the new beginning. Like the beginning of the Bible was Genesis. Now this is the new Genesis of Jesus, the Messiah. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Now these two men are incredibly important in the history of Israel. David and Abraham. And then this, this line then follows from Abraham and goes through David. So Abraham had Isaac and Jacob and then it goes on. But what I want to make a point of to start with is that Matthew goes back to two men who God made promises to. And this is the Jewish belief that the living God, real God in history spoke and made promises. Not, not just a religious experience, not just a personal faith, but a real historical act that happened. This is the promise that God made to Abram. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. So God comes to this man and says, leave your family, your house, leave, leave your area, your parents, and go to this new land. And he says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is actually like the birth of the Israelite, the Jewish people. That it started with God coming to a man and making a promise. And the promise involved actually having a son. They weren't able to have kids. He had a child in old age through God's power. But the promise initially was that from Abraham, there would be a nation and this nation would bless the entire world. That God's heart in this promise is actually that these people will come to know God and through these people, the whole world will come to know God and the whole world will be blessed because things are not right at the moment. God made it good, but there's evil in the world. Now God wants to redeem it and fix it. So there's this promise. This list keeps going though and follows from Abraham and Isaac, the child, and then it keeps going all the way up to this man named David, who again is probably the key figure in the Old Testament, probably with Abraham. And he is the first real true king of Israel. So this nation starts, is born with Abraham and grows and grows and gets bigger and bigger and eventually actually becomes a kingdom with a king. And David is the king 
who loves God and, and worships God. He's called the man after God's own heart. And, and he is, there's so many of the Psalms are written by him. And he is this defining figure in the Old Testament. And again, God made a promise to David. This is, it's a bit longer, but this is just a brief version. God said to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God made this promise to David that he's the king of Israel. And he said, you will always have descendants on the throne. Your throne will last forever. The kingdom will last forever is God's promise to David. So promise to Abraham is nation that will bless the world. Promise to David is the kingdom, the throne will last forever. And the interesting thing is that this understanding and this perspective, these two people are so important because this is what's driving history. That actually history is driven by the promises of God. That God is actually at work. He has a purpose and he makes a promise. And then we see it start to be fulfilled. And he has a purpose and he makes a promise. And we see it start to be fulfilled. And actually that it's not just random happenings of history. And this is not just people's religious experience, but actually God making promises and being faithful to them. This is how one author describes it. This is Leslie Newbig. And he says, All human life is a gift from God. And all things exist by his will. History, therefore, is not the story of the development of forces imminent within history. He's saying it's not just things evolved and and things just happened over time or people just come up with stuff that sort of just makes sense to them. He says it's actually a matter of the promise of God. History has a goal only in the sense that God has promised it, that God has actually spoken. God is actually defining and leading world history in a certain direction. This is, this is what the Jews believed and were really defined by. And this is, this is why this is so important in this list of Jesus' um, fathers, basically that he's linked back to this because the promise was ultimately looking to one day somebody would come and really truly fulfill all these other promises. One day someone would come and actually fix the evil and the problems in the world. And it actually goes back to original promise. Right at the start of the story in Genesis, God creates people, the world is good, but they're deceived and evil enters. And God makes a promise right then. It's a bit obscure, but it says this. He's talking um, to Eve. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. Sorry, this is, he's, he's speaking to the serpent, actually, the, the evil I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It's actually, that is this initial promise that there's somebody coming and this person who's coming will defeat evil for good. And there's a hint that there'll be suffering involved, that the evil will strike his heel, but he will crush evil. He will deal with evil. That's the initial promise. And then God makes these promises all along the way. We see history is actually driven by the promises of God. This is um, just from that. So as we go through this genealogy, it's basically broken up into three sections. And the first section is, is from Abraham, that first promise, all the way to David. And it's kind of like things are getting better and better. Like, like God creates this nation out of Abraham. They go through troubles, but God is faithful. God builds them up to this kingdom. And it's like things are awesome. Things are looking great. But as we go through this list, we'll see things get progressively worse. David was the father of Solomon. Again, Solomon's kingdom is this huge, amazing kingdom. 
whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And there's this hint in this genealogy that David, the man after God's own heart, he still did evil. Actually, he committed adultery and had the, the, wife, the, the husband of the wife he committed adultery with murdered. That was that woman Uriah that's mentioned in this history. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and then it goes on. And most of these kings now turn out to be evil. If you read the book of First and Second Kings, it just gets depressing and depressing and worse and worse. It's like these, these, these people that are supposed to be God's nation, supposed to be kings who lead from that love for God, reject him, reject his ways, and take on the evil of all the people around them. And it gets worse and worse and worse. There's some in this list, some of them turn back. Some of them get rid of the idols. Some of them get rid of the evil and, and try to turn things around. But it's on such a progression down that it just gets worse and worse and worse. And this list in the middle section ends with Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. And this is the story of Israel. It starts with this promise. It grows, but then it just goes down. And this kingdom that the, the Israelites, like... Um, they, they, they forget God and God actually sends them out of the land. There's a judgment. They go into exile. And this is so confusing. Like God had promised them they're meant to be this blessing to the nations. God had promised that this kingdom is just going to grow and be glorious. But they've forgotten. They've lost. There's judgment. They're exiled. And it's like there's major problems. And we see in this list that Matthew's going through that history is characterized by the failures of humans. There's the promises of God, but the failures of humans. And this list, Jesus' family, Matthew's writing this, is just open about that, that there's multiple failures, that these kings forgot God, that even David made a mistake, that there's, there's people of all different types, and everyone in many ways is characterized by failure. This is what N.T. Wright says, The Babylonian exile was the time when it seemed that all these promises were lost forever, drowned in the sea of Israel's sins and God's judgment. These people had these huge hopes, this confidence in God, now gone. They're in a different land. They, they, they don't have freedom. They're under oppression. Went through major trauma and catastrophe, being overtaken by a foreign army. And, and things just seem terrible. It seems like hope is lost, but it's not. Again, like in that video, the, the, even then, there was hope. Because the confidence wasn't in things getting better in the circumstances, but in God and His promise. And then this last group, things start to slowly build back up again. After the exile to Babylon, then this list, again, I won't try and read. Most of these are not really well-known people at all. This is people, after 70 years in exile, Israel comes back into the promised land, but things still are just not right. Even like Tony was, was explaining in communion, they're still under other, um, like foreign occupation, different countries, multiple different ones. And it's just, things are still not good. And there's this long list of just king after king. And well, they're not really actually kings, they're just sort of descendants. All the way up to Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary was the mother of Jesus, who's called the Messiah. There's this list of descendants, this line that's been traced, even when it seems like there's no hope, even when it seems like things are not going well, God is at work behind the scenes in secret ways, 
making sure that his promises will be fulfilled. See, history is rescued by the faithfulness of God. He promised humans fail, but God is still faithful. He's still at work even in the midst of that. This is how one author puts it. When the people of God thought everything had fallen apart, God started to put everything together again. God had promised Abraham and David important sons. And though it took a long time, God delivered. He, he delivered Jesus. When all this, 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 line, this long line progressed all the way up to Christ. Then this genealogy finishes with this really interesting thing. And if you, there's, you can go into a lot of depth of sort of um, study around this. But it's interesting. Matthew says, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. So the first section is Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile to Babylon. And 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So three groups of 14. Now his point in saying this is not so much to be a literal history because he, he kind of is a bit, um, takes a bit of creative license with the numbers. But he's making a point about, about what he's saying about Jesus. And it's also a way to remember, like to memorize, to make it easier. But it's interesting, in, in Jewish, again, in Jewish culture, numbers are really important. And particularly the number seven is, is like the number of perfection or the number of fulfillment. So if you like maths, this is the, the good part in the sermon. So there's three groups of 14, or you could say six groups of seven. So two groups of seven times three, six groups of seven is Matthew's point. So if, if that is the way it's, it's, it's sort of building to the seventh, and this is, this is how one author describes it. Number seven was and is one of the most powerful symbolic numbers. And to be born at the beginning of the seventh seven, so three groups of 14 is the seventh seven in the sequence, is clearly to be the climax of the whole list. This birth, Matthew is saying, is what Israel has been waiting for for 2,000 years. So God makes this promise to Abraham. Which, which is fulfilled slowly. He makes this promise to David, which is fulfilled slowly. They go into exile, but it keeps going. And eventually the climax is that actually he delivers in Jesus. Matthew shows the believer that when you add up the meaning of history, the bottom line is Jesus Christ, the son of David. That God has actually been working in history from back at the beginning to this point when his son will come into the world that actually history has a goal and a meaning and a purpose. We could say it in this way. History is ultimately about Jesus. Or another way to say it is that Jesus is the meaning of history. And it's so interesting, right, that even still today, we're in the year 2018 AD, from the year of our Lord. The history we're talking about is BC, before Christ, that Jesus actually defines history in the actual way that we measure it. But what Matthew is saying in this is that Jesus is actually the point of history, that actually God has been working in human history in, in some major ways with, with miracles and speaking, and even in hidden ways when things just look terrible. God's been leading everything up to this point when he sends his son actually into the story, into history that actually it has a purpose, it has a goal, and it's all around him. So what I want to do is, is just sort of take that idea and say, well, what does that mean for us today? How do, how do, how does that, what does that mean for us at Advent or at Christmas? How do we apply that to our life? If Jesus is the meaning of history, 
like if that's, again, it's not just that's a personal belief. We're, we're actually saying, Matthew's actually saying this is the truth. This is actually real life, that God actually has a meaning and a purpose. And if that's the truth, that again has to be believed by faith, then we have a story. We are people who have a past. And actually, that long list of people that is not very interesting is actually our story. The New Testament talks about Jesus. When we come to faith in him, we're included in God's family as God's children. And that this is God's family, people of faith, all the way back to Abraham. And that actually when we read this story, it's not, oh, that's just something that happened a long time ago and doesn't mean anything to me. It's actually, no, we're in God's family. And actually this is our story. We are connected all the way through that long list. And again, we can see that in our own life as well. Times when God has made promises. Times when we have failed and there's been discipline or judgment or or we've, we've lost. And times when God has just been faithful even though we fail. God has been working in the midst of our weakness. That actually the story of Israel is the story of us as well. We enter into it. And it means, again, that life is not just, we, we, we live so individualized often. And, and we just think life is about me and what I'm going to achieve and my dreams and my goals. And that's, that's, that's good. But this is saying that ultimately, no, it's not about me and my dreams and goals. There's actually a bigger story going on. And we actually have a past and we actually enter into it. Therefore, we have a future. This is the interesting thing that, that, again, we can kind of read the Bible sometimes that, again, it's just something that happened a long time ago. But the way that it's written is actually it's a story claiming to tell the true story of history, and history is not finished. It's actually still going, which actually means we are in the story, that we have a past, and Jesus has come, and now we live in this time before he returns, and actually, we are participants in that narrative, in that story. And actually, it's all leading to a future hope when he comes again, when he redeems the whole world, when he, when he deals with evil once and for all, when we live forever with him in perfect peace and harmony and freedom. Like that's actually where everything's going. Actually, the world and history has a direction, and therefore it has a hope. And... Sometimes it's easy not to have hope. Sometimes it's easy to think things are not going to get better. Or it's easy to look at the world and think everything's getting worse, everything's getting harder, everything's getting bad. But that's not the way for Christians to think about the world. The way is actually Jesus has come, all of history led up to his coming, and he has promised that he's coming again, and he's going to redeem the whole world. And we have a hope that's a confident looking to that future, that, that, that God has promised that. And like he's fulfilled his other promises, he will fulfill that as well. And if that's true then, if we have a past story, if everything's leading to this future goal, then actually, I'll skip that for now, then actually we have purpose and meaning. Again, if there's no past, if there's really no future, then there's really no meaning. Everything is just meaningless. But if there's a past... If everything's heading towards a goal and a future, then there's a purpose. And if there's a purpose, there's meaning. And that's actually the biblical 
um, picture of life. These authors are saying, actually, God has been working in history. We are part of the story, and therefore life is actually full of meaning and purpose. Again, it's not primarily about us. It's about Jesus, and we find our meaning as we enter into his story and contribute to it. This is interesting, again, because you might think, well, no, what you're saying, Tim, is that Jesus has come to forgive us from our sins, so when we die, we'll just go to heaven. So that kind of means that, well, life here doesn't really matter. Like, we just wait till we go to heaven, and it'll be good. But for now, we just wait and just try to have a nice life. But it's interesting, the, the um, Apostle Paul writing about that, writing about future hope and resurrection, he says, after this, after talking about we have eternal life, death has been defeated. We have a future hope. After he says all that, he says this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. If there's a future, it's actually motivation to work now and actually be faithful to God now and actually serve now because it's meaningful, because it will last forever that what we actually give and how we actually serve is not meaningless. It doesn't just disappear when we die. It doesn't just go and be forgotten. It's actually last. The labor for the Lord is not in vain. This is how um, one author puts it. He said, by this, he means that what you do in the present, by painting, preaching, singing, sowing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. All those things are ways of reflecting God, honoring God, pouring into his kingdom. He says, these activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly or a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind. They are a part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. If life is heading towards this future, what we do now actually contributes what we do now actually lasts. What we do now is incredibly significant. The small things, the big things. Therefore, we have a hope. Therefore, life has meaning and purpose. The small things we do for Lord last and are meaningful. And he sees them and he remembers them. So what we're saying is that Jesus is the meaning of history. It frees us from this pressure that we have to make our life meaningful. We have to be the center. He is the center. He, God has been working everything up to him and will continue to work everything up to his return. And we play a small part in that, but find great meaning in contributing to his purpose. And what we do is, like in the, the story of Israel, involved people who wait, people who wait for God, people who trust in his promise, people who look to him even when everything around just looks like it's not going to come good, but his promise still stands. We are also people who wait, people who wait for his return, people who wait for him to come and redeem and to work in our lives. And I want to read this last, um, can you go back to the psalm slide, I think? Oh, there we go. Read this last one to finish, then we might sing if you guys want to maybe come back up. And I'll finish with this, this idea that like Israel would be people who wait, we are people who wait. This is Psalm 33. We wait in hope for the Lord. So it's actually the Lord that we wait for. He is our help and our shield. 
In Him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in His holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. We put our hope in Him, in His promise, in His coming, in His arrival, as we remember and as we look forward. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll sing to Him to finish off. Father, just thank you that you are a God who, who speaks and who is faithful to your promises, who is full of mercy that even though we fail, you still work and you keep your word. Thank you, God, that, that you've been at work in history through Jesus and you're continuing to and we get to enter into that. And Father, we ask that you'd make us people who wait, people of great hope, um, a hope that is strong even when the circumstances don't reflect it at all, God, would our hope be in you. And Father, I just pray for us today, even particularly, God, for, for anyone today who's, who's lost hope, um, who has no vision of the future or, or, or hope that things can get better, God, would you restore hope? We pray, God, would you restore a vision of who you are and what you have? And would you do that for us collectively, God? Would you give us vision and a future? And, and as, we, as you call us to enter into your purpose, uh, we just pray this in your name. Amen.